Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Welcome. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. On the podcast today, a treat. I have a treat for you. Well, I have a treat for me. I don't know if it'll be a treat for you. I guess we shall see. Um, I told you guys long ago, I had quite an interest in uh, Carl Jung, and that that sort of came from um, reading Jordan Peterson and hearing him talk a lot about that type of uh, psychology, uh, Freud and Jung, and it's super interesting. I mean, it's dream, dream interpretations and the collective unconscious and archetypes that exist in this, you know, this non-material plane. Yet we're all we all have access to and, and model. I mean, there's just so much m- mystical, unexplainable stuff um, in the in the human psyche. And Carl Jung and uh, Sigmund Freud were the first ones to really give it a fair shake, at least in the, in the modern world. I mean, we might argue that, um, that the ancient world had a, had a keen respect for dreams, dream images, revelations, you know, uh, visions from, from various gods and so forth. They took that very seriously, very seriously. If you don't think so, just look at something like the uh, Temple of Apollo at Delphi. And people come from all over the world, you know, and during a time in history when it was dangerous to do that, you know, travel a long way away from home, you know, f- with with constant fear of death or robbery or injury or something. And Jesus, get injured on the, get injured traveling in, in uh, you know, 200 BC or something like that. The likelihood of you uh, dying, pretty good, <laughs> pretty good. Uh, and yet people went from all over the world to see the priestess of Delphi to hear her interpretation of their dreams or to hear her vision or, um, you know, her speak the words of the gods, something like that, that that was very serious. I mean, kings would go there and say, priestess, tell me something I don't know. Um, You know, so I guess what I'm saying is it's probably something that we had once upon a time, um, the correct level of respect for what goes on in our unconscious and subconscious that we don't understand thoroughly. And we lost it along the way. And then we have people like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung who come along and try to bring it back. And I mean, I don't know about you, but what sort of, what sort of things have you heard about Carl Jung and and Sigmund Freud? What comes to mind immediately, something good or something bad? You see my point. When people think about Freud, they think about the the Oedipal complex. They think about, you know, Freud's insistence that we all have these weird sexual impulses towards our parents. That's fucking weird, and lots of people don't don't uh, want to even consider that. You know, let alone admit 
that that might be true. Um, so those are the kind of things that come up uh, when we talk about Carl Jung. It's like he gets written off as a as a religious thinker. He gets written off as a you know as a, a, a mystic maybe, but he tried hard during his life to not be seen in that sort of a negative light. He wanted to be seen as um, bringing psychology, bringing the mind, the human mind, into the realm of science, hard science. He wanted to be seen as somebody contributing to, you know, the human endeavor we call science. And the reason I tell you all that is because he wrote a book that didn't get published until after he died. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's a book called The Red Book. I heard about it first from Jordan Peterson. And, um, you know, if you've heard of Carl Jung, you've heard of probably the um, archetypes of the collective unconscious. That was his big, big masterwork, right? His big, um, you know, um, important book. I mean, it was that, that was it. There were others, but that was the big one. So if you've heard of them, you've probably heard of that. You've heard of things like archetypes in the collective unconscious. If you're like me, you, you thought they were interesting but didn't know a whole lot about them. And um, so I read that. I read the archetypes of the collective unconscious. I had to go back and look at some things in it to prepare for today. But it's really night and day when you look at something like the archetypes of the collective unconscious and the Red Book. It's night and day. Um, Archetypes of the collective unconscious, like I said, written to be kind of a scientific tome, for lack of a better word. Um, it's written for people who are interested, obviously. It's written to go into the depths that, that, uh, of, our, of our psyche that uh, Jung and Freud wanted to shine a light on. But it's also something, if you wanted to be that type of psychologist, that you could read to kind of learn the ropes and uh, learn the vocabulary and all that sort of stuff. And it was, you know, largely Carl Jung's creation. Uh, Freud, you know, is important in the beginning, but largely all the stuff that I find interesting comes from comes from Jung. And what he did in the Red Book was he said things that he never would have said in Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious. Um, and he said things in ways that he wouldn't have said in this book. And you're going to see in a minute when we start reading about it, why it's different why the Red Book is different. I hinted at it a little bit when I said that it didn't get published till after his death. And it sounds a whole lot different from the rest of the stuff he wrote. And guys, the rest of the stuff he wrote got resistance enough, you know? Like, he was hippy-dippy enough in Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious for, you know, most scientists and most psychiatrists and psychologists even today write him off entirely, so if what he says in the Red Book goes way beyond that, then what do we have in store for you today? Well, that's why I said I got something good for you today. Carl Jung's Red Book. Um, so I'm calling this episode Gandalf the Red. <laughs> Carl Jung the Mystic. Gandalf the Red because we're talking about the Red Book. Gandalf because, um, well, because... Well, I think, it's, I think it's a funny play on words. But also because Carl Jung... He talks a lot about images, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. And one of the things he said is that he had these images of um, something that represented God, more or less. These were like fantasy images, things he saw in his dreams or fantasies or whatever. Um, but these images would come, and then sometimes they would change. And he talks about that with himself. He talks about that with uh, people in his psychology practice that came to see him, how the symbols will change. And he 
at one point saw the the image of God as a wizard. You know, and it it's no surprise. I mean, when we think about God or the supernatural, what comes to mind? I mean, magic, you know, uh, mystery. That's what comes to mind. And so Carl Jung saw that manifest as a wizard in his in his dreams and his fantasies. So that that's why we're calling this one Gandalf the Red, Carl Jung the Mystic. So let me tell you about the book a little bit. When I heard about it from Jordan Peterson, what he the way he described it was that Carl Jung took really careful notes of exercises that he did, experiments that he did with his imagination. And you might want to know what that is and what that even means. And I'll feed you baby birds. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you about this. Um, so he's so he's doing what he calls active imagination, and it reminds me of it reminds me a lot of the psychedelic stuff that we've been talking about uh, recently. You know, the people that call themselves psychonauts. You know, people that delve into um, human consciousness in a way that's not ordinary. They do that through psychedelic, you know, psychoactive substances. Let's say. Um, and then they learn something. They, they see visions, they learn something, and they come out of those visions, usually the better. Sometimes scared and terrified, but usually the better. And I think this is what Carl Jung has recreated with what he calls active imagination. So let me explain this to you. He's going into his subconscious or unconscious, just like a, psych- a psychonaut's going to do when they take psychedelics. But he's going to do this all by himself, not with the help of any chemicals. He's doing this all by himself. And this is how he does it. He will relax himself. He will get into a state of mind where he is thinking fluidly. You know, maybe this is like a half asleep kind of relaxed sort of state. Maybe you've got images that pop in your head the way that they did for me when I was in the float tank. And I described that to you guys, something like that. You know, images, or if you're meditating, you know, images will pop in your head or concepts or ideas will pop in your head. And if you're meditating, you just sort of push them out of your head and you go back to the quiet place. Carl Jung didn't do that. Carl Jung said, oh, there's an image. Let me, let me hold it here in my mind. Let me, let me examine it and see what it is. Um, what associations do I have with this image? Why am I seeing it? What does it mean? That kind of thing. So he actually wanted these images that come from nowhere seemingly, these images and ideas and thoughts and fantasies that pop in your head when you're zoning out, that pop in your head when you're trying to fall asleep or trying to meditate, um, when you're in a, a state of mind where you're not conscious in the ordinary way and you start getting this bleed over you know, from the unconscious or subconscious realms of your mind. You start getting these images that are pop. Where did they come from? I don't know. What do they mean? I don't know. It's a fucking mystery. That's, that's the thing that he took very seriously because he saw that just like he saw dreams, just the way his teacher Sigmund Freud talked about dreams as something that might hold meaning, about something that might be analyzed, something that, you know, you might be able to learn from. And, and Carl Jung had taken this a step further, you know, in his own thinking. He thought that there, that there is a part of ourselves that we don't exactly have access to, something we call the unconscious or the collective unconscious because we all have it, right? And that place, you know, you might call it an imaginary place, but we'll talk more about it. It, it was the place where archetypes exist. 
So Carl Jung coined this term, archetypes. He coined the term collective unconscious. Um, we'll talk about it more, but it's something that sounds a lot like Plato when he talked about the world of forms. You know, the world of forms is something like the collective unconscious. It's a place. And the archetypes are like the forms that exist there. And um, so what he wanted to do with this active imagination was allow those images, those archetypes, to creep into his conscious, awake reality and allow him to play with them. So he sort of bridges this gap between his awake, aware, conscious state and the unconscious state. And he allows them to bleed over and he can see what's there and glimpses and shadows and play with them. And the idea was that if he could do this, that what he would do was he would invite, in a manner of speaking, these archetypes, which he explains is something like instinctual forces, you know, we'll talk more about that, but instinctual forces. So by forces, we just mean something that moves you, something that has power, you know, to influence you. Um, it's not exactly clear what it is, um, but it has that ability, you know, it's a, it's something that like a spirit that can descend from this place, this place he's calls the collective unconscious, and it can possess the image that he's brought to mind. So he's got this psychic image. It's like an avatar. And the spirit, this archetype, can descend into the avatar, and then he can learn more about what the archetype is through this image. And it gets weirder than that, because Carl Jung gets so good at this, almost like a, you can imagine this almost like a, um, like a waking dream, um, or a, a lucid dream, you know? He can bring these images to his mind almost by, by will. And once he's got an image fleshed out a little, he can bring that same image back to mind. And, and to him, that image is sort of possessed by this spirit, by this archetype. And he can even talk to it. So in his you know, waking dream, he can talk to this imaginary image that is, in his mind, possessed by this spirit that exists in this unconscious, abstract, you know, collective unconscious, this, this weird, weird, otherworldly place um, that we are, that we're attached to and don't understand at all. And he can talk to it and ask it questions and it can tell him things. And if you think that's weird, I mean, it is weird. But if you think it's weird, what I would say to you is, you know, I've got people in my life that are particularly religious, you know, like a People who've been around, like like grandma, let's say, um, she got a lot, of, a lot of life experience and still have maintains like a, a strong religious beliefs. And when you talk to her, she'll tell you that she speaks with God. And you know that you probably have some people like that you know of. And if you didn't know her, if she wasn't your grandma, you might be like, "What in the fuck do you mean?" I, I'm, this lady is nuts. Um, you hearing voices? Is that what's happening? Okay, I'm out of here. But I know her. She's my grandma. She's not crazy. She's, she's, she's you know, considerate, intelligent, spiritual. Um, when, when she says she speaks to God, what she means is that when she has desires, questions, you know, aches of the heart, when she looks within herself for, for answers or for peace, she gets them. And to her, that is the response from God. She's praying, you know, she's looking for an answer, she's looking for comfort, whatever it might be, and she gets, she gets it. 
she gets a response. So for her, she's speaking with God. And I talked about this before, like in, in the sense of prayer. You know, if you want something, especially if you're a kid, before you really learn what prayer is really all about, when you think it's about, you know, wish fulfillment or something, and you can ask magical God uh, to give you the things that you want, selfish or not, does it matter? You know, that's sort of immature. It's nonsense, you know. My, what I'm what I'm talking about is closing down, closing your eyes, laying down, thinking about some existential angst that you've got, you know, whatever it is. It's a fear of death. It's a fear of, you know, a decision you've got to make about your, you know, romantic interest or about a career or about what you're going to study, you know, things that, that you've got anxiety about and you're, and you're fearful about. And you sit down and you close your eyes and you think about it. You, you really engage your own consciousness with this idea, with this image and when you do that, when you do that, you can offer yourself something. And once you learn that, once you get over the, the idea that offering yourself an answer to a question you have, you know, you can't, it's easy to write that off because you say, look, I don't know the answer. That's why I have the question. I don't know the answer. But then you propose to yourself in your mind a possible answer possible path towards getting that thing that you want or avoiding that thing that you don't. And it's easy to write that off and say, yeah, I need to talk to somebody who knows. But the thing is, you don't know where that answer is coming from, right? You just said you don't know the answer that you, you're the one with the question. And yet you're, you're proposing an answer to yourself. If you stop and you listen to yourself, you will propose an answer. And it might be something as simple as, look, I never thought about this long enough before. Now I'm thinking about it and I realize I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. And I should be. If I want this thing, I should be. Or I'm doing, you know, X, Y, and Z and I shouldn't be. Or, <clears throat> you know, maybe I should be doing this. You're, you're going to see a path where before you only had a question. And w what you've got is an answer, an answer that you've provided to yourself, a path that you can potentially follow. It may or may not be the right one, but it's certainly going to get you closer. You know, if it's the wrong path, it's at least going to show you that it's the wrong path. That's going to get you closer too. So there's a way in which prayer and just thinking, you know, just introspection and thinking, it, it's like a bit of a Q&A inside your head. And the answers come from somewhere. And because you don't, you're not conscious of them, all you've got is questions, you have to ask yourself, where are those answers coming from? And Jung would say, they're coming from the unconscious. And that's amazing. That's, I think, what I'm trying to get at when I'm describing what Jung is doing here. He's become very good at creating these situations that allow him to get answers and knowledge from the unconscious. Um, and, th and this is that process of active imagination, and it's something that, you know, he can do, that's why he calls it active imagination, while he's awake. But you can also do it while you're dreaming. It also happens in fantasies that you don't control, things that just pop up in your mind when you're sitting in, in a, on the church pew or when you're sitting in class or whatever it is, and you get those thoughts that seem to come from nowhere. So that's the kind of shit we're going to talk about today in the Red Book. Intrigued? Oh, buddy, I am. And I got to tell you, I read the first bit of that book. I can't tell you how enthusiastic I was about it. I, it was like nothing I've ever read before. 
but I'll take that back slightly. It did remind me of a book called The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if anybody's ever read it. C.S. Lewis, uh, the guy that wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's like he's a Christian figure, but he's also uh, you know a fantasy author and very famous, uh, C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and it was interesting. It, it was a book about like a, like a novice demon who's writing letters to his uncle, Screwtape. And his uncle was like this old demon who's been around and knows, you know, a thing or two. And so he's kind of like the mentor. And he's he's mentoring his, this younger, you know, novice demon. And they have, these, they have these conversations. It's like back and forth. You're reading their letters back and forth. And they're talking about the person that the demon is trying to influence and the, the successes and failures they're having. And then the uncle chiming in about what you can do and what people are like and how you can manipulate them, you know, in this way to be more successful. It's a very interesting way of thinking about this notion that uh, that evil is a force in the world that acts upon you and, and um, uh, that you can resist. But if you don't, you know, can really, can really, you know, fuck with you and really interfere with your, with your day to day. You know, the whole, the whole angel on one shoulder and devil on the other shoulder sort of image that we see in cartoons. That's the kind of thing that shows up in the screw tape letters. And it's really interesting to see kind of the, because, you know, listen, man, if you're, a demon is, is in literature, is a representation of those dark thoughts that you have, of those dark instincts that you have, of the desire for destruction and self-destruction that we that we struggle with, that we have, that we need to we need to come to terms with, and so it's like a psychological force inside your psyche. Um, you know, you call it a demon if you want to, but that's that's what it is. And so what um, C.S. Lewis has done is given us this dialogue. Right between this psychological forces in this particular human being's head, you know, the young demon, the old demon, and the and the human being are are constantly, you know, interacting and talking through this book, and it's really interesting. It's like getting a glimpse, um, getting a glimpse into somebody else's mind and and all of the subconscious psychological forces that are pulling you here and there, and that's really what the red book seems like to me and you'll see what I mean. I want to do um I want to say one more thing that that puts some context to this. We talked about something before when we were doing the episodes on uh, modes of sentience. We talked about Socrates. Um if you remember Socrates said in Plato's dialogues when you when you read them, he said that he had a a voice, like a spirit that lived in him. He called it his daemon which is interesting in the context of the screw tape letters because daemon is where we get the word demon from, but that's not what was meant in ancient Greece. It was it was more like his soul, something like that. He had this inner voice, his conscience, right? His daemon is like his Jiminy fucking cricket. And Socrates heard this voice, and whatever it told him was right or wrong, that's what he would follow. He did it without fail. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It was his daemon that he consulted when he was arrested and given the hemlock to drink and all the guards kind of left and went the other way and gave him an opportunity to escape because he was a good dude and an old man and nobody wanted to kill him, really. You know, the government the government wanted to make a point but didn't want to really kill him. Nobody wanted to really kill him. And he asked the daemon, should I leave or should I stay? And the daemon said, stand on your principles. Drink the poison and die. And, and he did. And he did. He listened to his daemon. 
We also learned when we were reading Modes of Sentience that, that Friedrich Nietzsche had the same thing. And I didn't know this, and this was really interesting to learn, that Nietzsche believed that he had a spirit within him. Um, he called the spirit Dionysus. So that, that's the name of a Greek god, but that's the spirit of chaos. That's the spirit of intoxication. That's the type of being that you experience when you are, when you are, you know, fucked up and when you're on psychedelics or when you're very drunk, something like that. It's, that's that spirit that, that, you know, I don't know, it's the spirit of sloppy sex. It's the spirit of, you know, overdoing it. It's the spirit of, you know, frivolity and hangovers. It's, it's, it's that part of us, right? And Nietzsche believed that that was a voice within him. And he, became, he eventually came to identify with it, where he would even sign letters. Instead of signing them, love Frederick Nietzsche, he signed them Dionysus. <laughs> okay. We also heard something like that from Jordan Peterson. So if you remember when we were reading uh, Maps of Meaning, he described that. He said when he was, when he was in college and, and shortly afterwards, uh, especially when he was getting into politics and was trying to decide whether, whether he was really a communist or socialist or not, because that was something that he was toying with you know, in, in the early days. Um, and he said that he would hear a voice. I mean, maybe not a real audible voice, but he would have this thought in his mind that would seem to question him while he was speaking you know, and he described it like he would say something and then he would have a thought immediately kind of overlapping his, his sentence. And it would say, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. Because what he realized was that he was speaking other people's words and, and he was thinking other people's thoughts and he was perfectly successful and happy to do that. Yet there was this, there was this gnawing feeling in the back of his mind subconsciously that was saying those aren't your thoughts you don't really believe that you, you know you're, you're making a mistake you're doing something wrong and he decided to start listening to that voice and it changed his life so i tell you all that to say that this is sort of what i see in the red book with carl jung he's going to be having conversations with spirits and those are the inner voice, the conscience, the Jiminy Crickets that Socrates had and Nietzsche just talked about and, and Jordan, Jordan talked about. Um, they all talk about it differently. And Carl Jung's no exception. He's going to talk about it differently. So what I want to do now, before I jump into it, because it's so freaking weird, man, it, this book reads like the screw tape letters in a way. It also reads like a holy book. It reads like a revelation that that you know. Again, when you're talking to when you're talking to spirits, how how different is that from an angel descending from heaven and telling you something like you might read in the Bible or the Quran or something like that? Uh, it, this is how it comes across to me. So what I want to do is read you a couple of quotes to open this up, uh, and then we'll get into it. All right, so. This, this whole idea of active imagination that we were talking about earlier, uh, Carl Jung describes it, uh, the purpose of it, as, quote, comprehending the psychological significance of fantasy. And that's sort of what we said earlier, that there may in fact be some significance to fantasy, to the images in fantasy, to the emotions in fantasy, to the ideas in fantasy or in dreams. There might be some significance to it. And if there is... It might be 
particularly significant, maybe even the most significant. All right, so here we go. Uh, Quote number one goes like this. My speech is imperfect, not because I want to shine with words, but out of the impossibility of finding those words, I speak in images. With nothing else can I express the words from the depths. All right, so that's quote number one from Young. He says, my speech is imperfect, so I speak in images. And this is something I've noticed in myself, and I've tried to talk about it before, but I think this is really well put. It's like when I had a mystic experience, it changed the way I think about things in just dramatic and hard-to-define ways. And one of the things it did was it left me unsatisfied with speech, unsatisfied with language, that words never, never meant what I was hoping to convey, especially if I was talking about something I didn't understand well, like, like the mystic experience, something I was trying to understand. It's, it became much easier for me to think and speak in images. And this is what Carl Jung is saying. We, we said, talked about this in lots of ways, but what comes to my mind now are the episodes we did on postmodernism. In postmodernism, they talked about language being meaningless, signs and signifiers be, being legitimately meaningless, um, that a word, a symbol, doesn't have a meaning. It seems to, but it doesn't, not all by itself. That, that we say, you know, uh, a word like, oh boy, I was coming up with examples on the fly. You, th- you think about a word like, I don't know, heat or something. And heat has a cloud of meaning, of associations that surround it. And when you're doing something like dream interpretation, it's this, it's the same sort of thing. You have an image that's surrounded by an association of other images. So if, if I say something is hot, and we're talking about heat, and then you ask me, what does heat mean? And I'm, I'm going to tell you, or you, you say, what is heat? And I'm going to tell you, well, it's something that feels like this. It's something that has the potential to do that. It's something that, um, you know, can cause objects to glow. It's something that, you know, like, I, I'll give you other words, to try to explain what heat is. And what that reveals is that heat doesn't have a meaning. It evokes other words, right? And they don't have meaning either. But when you look at them all together, they have a cloud of associations that 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 does seem to have some sort of meaning, not by themselves, but together. And and so this is what comes to mind here with 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 images. It's like images have the ability to convey more information and to conceal more information than than you necessarily understand. And that's why works of art are so pregnant with meaning, how you can read a poem and then 10 years from now read it again and it has a whole whole other dynamic of meaning than it once did. Images are way more dynamic than words. And so I've come to think more in images and Carl Jung is saying the same. And he says, with nothing else can I express the words from the depths. So what he means here is that there is meaning in the depths that cannot be, that cannot be properly represented in words. That It's much better to use images and analogies. And you see that all the time. Anybody's trying to anybody who's trying to explain to you something difficult to understand, like a physics experiment or a philosophical concept, they're always using analogies. It's like this. It's like that. That's what I mean. Thinking in images. Okay. Then, <clears throat> then Carl, Carl Jung says this. He says, 
If we possess the image of a thing, we possess half the thing. The image of the world is half the world. The wealth of the soul exists in images. Okay, so images, according to Jung, is something that gives him what he needs to make some sense out of the unexplainable, out of the unknowable, out of, out of you know, the abstract meaning in our unconscious, whatever that means. And he says it that 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 wealth of uh, of images that exists it, they exist in the soul. So now you have a connection between something he's calling the soul and what he would would have called before the collective unconscious, the place where these primordial archetypes exist. And then this idea that if we possess the image of a thing, we possess half the thing. If we if we have an image of the world, it's half the world. That's an interesting thing because it supposes that there's another half to be had. And what that other half is, is a question mark. And I think we're going to talk about that today. But if you have the image of a thing, you have half the thing. So let's find out what the other half is. And that <clears throat> brings me to my last quote to, to open or finish up the opening here. And this comes from a lady, I think a lady, uh, forgive me if it's a man, Sonu Sham, Shamdasani. And this person is the... Um, she wrote the introduction to this this version of the book and uh, uh, all the commentary and all that. And she, he or she says, uh, Liber Novus, which is another name for the Red Book, is an unfinished manuscript corpus. And it is not completely clear how Young intended to complete it or how he would have published it had he decided to do so. And I thought that was important to bring to you for the reasons I brought up earlier. This is a book Carl Young wrote for himself. It was never finished, maybe never never intended to be finished. It was a, a book he wrote for himself, his own notes, his own thoughts, his deepest and most intimate ideas and, and thoughts. And and this person is saying he may he may never have published this on his own. It was published after he after he died. And and the information in the red book he he says that it's a it's the corpus of all of the knowledge that Carl Jung developed in his life. So all of the scientific, much easier to read books that he wrote up to this were written for a general audience. And this is something more like the contents of his soul through all the exploration that he did in, in the, over the course of his life laid bare in a book, most of which he doesn't even understand himself and is trying to understand <clears throat> and what we're going to read today comes mainly from the from the 19 teens just before and after uh the first world war broke out and that brings me to the book so i hope your interest is peaked let's get into it i call this first section the way of what is to come all right so young says i have learned that in addition to the spirit of this time, there is another spirit at work, namely that which rules the depths of everything contemporary. The other spirit forces me to speak beyond justification, use, and meaning. Filled with human pride and blinded by the presumptuous spirit of the times, I long sought to hold that other spirit away from me, but I did not consider that the spirit of the depths from time immemorial 
and for all the future, possesses a greater power than the spirit of the time who changes with the generations. The spirit of the depths took away my belief in science. He robbed me of the joy of explaining and ordering things. And he let the devotion to the ideals of this time die out in me. He forced me down to the last and simplest things. The spirit of the depths took my understanding and all my knowledge and placed them at the service of the inexplicable and the paradoxical. For the melting together of sense and nonsense produces the supreme meaning. Did you get all that, you guys? Did you get all that? Fucking A, young. So this is how he opens this up. This is what I meant when I said it reads... It reads like a revelation or a holy book. It reads very strangely. And there's all kinds of interesting things that we could talk about with the opening. But I, I, what I want to point out first is that he, is that he acknowledges these two spirits that he seems, to, he seems to interact with or seem to interact with him. The spirit of the time and the spirit of the depths. And that's interesting. And the spirit of the depths, he says, is more powerful than the spirit of the time. Because the spirit of the time changes from generation to generation. The spirit of the depths is sort of deeper than that, sort of unchanging. And then he says this weird thing. He says, the spirit of the depths took away my belief in science. It took away his devotion to the ideals of, the, of this time. He said, it forced me down to the last and simplest things. And this is going to be a theme as we read through this. What does he mean by that? So when he, when he says um, that the Spirit robbed him of his belief in science and his joy in science, it sounds to me like the Spirit of the depth revealed that science is incomplete. And being is more than the physical. And that makes the pursuit of science, you know, empty a little bit. It, it, it makes it irrelevant a little bit. You know, if science is incomplete, it's not telling you the whole story. There's more to it than that. And if we're going to believe, like we do today, that science is the is the end in, the end all be all, and there's nothing more to it than the physical, then we're we're forever missing something. And he, so he's pointing that out. So when when he's when he talks about the spirit, uh, the spirit of the time. Um, it reminds me of this word zeitgeist. Uh, you maybe have heard that word before. Spirit of the times. It's like, it's like what is permitted for me to be. You know, what is it like? A, like a, a you know, a acceptable, socially acceptable human being in the modern world. It's different today than it was in 1950, and it's different, you know, today than it was in 1850 and you know, 1850 BC. You know, it's what it's the spirit of the times different, right? It's like what is it permitted for me to be? What sort of thoughts are permitted for me to think? What, what kind of things am I allowed to desire? Um, that, that is the spirit of the time. It's different for every time. And then you've got this idea of the spirit of the depth, which is like the spirit of all time. You know, It's not changing like the spirit of the times. It's deeper than that. Like I said, it's something that is like the spirit of all time. And then this last sentence I underlined it because it's just amazing. He says, For the melting together of sense and nonsense produces the supreme meaning. 
And that, that would be something easy to read and brush off, which I think most people would do if they picked up the Red Book. What does he mean, the melting together of sense and nonsense? And how does that produce anything meaningful, let alone the supreme meaning? What does that even mean? So the melting together of sense and nonsense, that, what that is is, is the, uni- the uniting of opposites, something we've talked about a lot. Um, usually to do with Jordan Peterson because he talks about this, he calls it the Ouroboros. He, he's talking about this symbol from mythology. It goes way back to the beginning, you know, to the to the Enuma Elish story from Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, where the god, uh, the Ouroboros, in, in the beginning was Apsu and Tiamat together, the male and the female together, opposites united, the salt water and the fresh water together, opposites united. And what they did... Um, again, being one thing together in this Ouroboros is generative. You know, it was something like sex, sex between the gods. It produced things. It produced the world. It produced being. So the idea of opposites united from a mythological perspective is something like the, the god of creation. And Young, again, Young says, uh, he describes it as the union of sense and nonsense. And, he, and rather than calling it the Ouroboros, he calls it syzygy which is a word I never heard before. I like it, syzygy. It's a nice word to say. It's a strange word to spell. Look it up, syzygy. So so the union of opposites, of sense and nonsense, produces what he calls the supreme meaning. And what, what is that? So the union of sense and nonsense, of meaning and no meaning. Again, opposites united is something that our instinct is to say is nothing. You know, you take a negative five, you put it together with a positive five, what do you get? Goose egg. You get nothing. You take one charge, a positive charge, you you unite it with an equal negative charge, what do you got? Nothing. So this is how we like to think, you know, intuitively, that the union of opposites is nothing. But that is simply not the case. it's, It's likely, to my mind, that nothing doesn't exist at all, never has, never will. It's a nonsense concept. It's something more like non-being. You know, we've talked about this before, but it's something that I would call potentiality. So if you have sense and nonsense together, or chaos and order together, or masculine and feminine together, or subject and object together, whatever you want to call it, whatever opposites you want to join together, when you do that, you're not left with nothing. You're left with potentiality. You're left with something that can become anything. You're left with like a stem cell of being. Let's put it that way. That is what Jung says is the supreme meaning. It's the thing that can mean anything. Wow. All right, let's keep going. So there are pieces of the Red Book where it's clear that Jung is talking from his own mouth. And then there are pieces of the Red Book that are italicized in the book that seem to be something different. It seems to be Carl Jung's spirit speaking to him. It's very strange, but this is what we're going to show you next. The spirit speaking to Jung, and it goes like this. The supreme meaning is the path, the way and the bridge to what is to come. That is the God yet to come. God is an image, and those who worship him must worship him in the image of the supreme meaning. 
All right, so it goes on, but let me just stop there for a second. There's, all right, listen, Carl Jung grew up in the Western Christian tradition, so there's going to be some words and things that have parallels in Christianity, and he leverages that. He definitely leverages that, and the image of God is something you see in the Bible, and he's talking about the God image here. He's talking about it, again, as the union of opposites, and he says those who want to worship the image of God must worship the image of the supreme meaning. And if we take that to mean, that union of opposites, to mean something like potentiality, something like the stem cell of reality that can become anything, that's the thing I would call God, what Jung is calling the image of God. I, I love that. It's something like potentiality. And he says that. He's going to call that the supreme meaning. That is the path, the way, and the bridge to what is to come. What does that mean? It means something like potential, the, the thing that you're seemingly made of yourself. That's the thing that's going to also become the future. When you, when you die and you, you know, your material and, and, let's say, psychic being gets recycled and becomes something new, right? That's what he means. You are potential. The world is potential. That's what it's made of. And that's going to be the same thing that becomes the future. That's potential. So that, that's the thing that can become, right? That's what he's saying. That is what you're worshiping when you worship God. Potential. That's, that should be mind-bendy for you, but it's so beautiful. So correct. All right, so he goes on. He says, the supreme meaning is not a meaning and not an absurdity. It is image and force in one. The supreme meaning is the beginning and the end. So you see what I mean when, when I say that there's some Christian, some Christian leverage going on here. The beginning and the end is what the New Testament calls God. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. That is what, is what Jung is calling the supreme meaning. Potential. The thing that is now and the thing that will become the future. Whatever that is. That's the beginning and the end. He, he says it's image and force in one. Now you remember earlier when he said the image of something is half the thing. So maybe the force is the other half. You know, the image and the force. What does that mean? I think it means something like, hmm, I'll tell you what. I'm going to save it. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil this because we're going to get into this in a minute. But I'll just plant that seed is to think about that. When Jung says that the image is half the thing, and then he goes in here and says that the supreme meaning, he says it's not a meaning and not an absurdity, right? It's both together. Those are opposites, right? It's both together. It's not one or the other. It's both together. And that thing is an image and a force in one. So that's what potentiality is, an image and a force in one. He says it's the beginning and the end. Mm. Mm. All right, he says, just to wrap this up, he says, the other gods died of their temporality, yet the supreme meaning never dies. It turns into meaning and then into absurdity, and out of the fire and blood of their collision, the supreme meaning rises up, rejuvenated anew. All right, so there's some good stuff here. When he says the other gods died of their temporality, he's comparing all of the other gods that have come before this concept of the supreme meaning. 
So whatever it was that we put our stock in, whatever it was we thought was the was the most fundamental truth, the thing that all of reality and being rests upon, that thing that we've always called God, that we used to believe it was something else apart from potentiality, right? We used to believe it was Zeus, the sky father. You know, we used to believe it was, um, you know, Ra, you know, the sun, something like that. So there's all sorts of, of gods uh, that, that have come and gone, that have died of their temporality. You know, as time goes on, as the cultures change, as ideas change, those gods died too. So their meaning, their potency, and really their reality wanes over time. You know, that's why Jung calls God the God image rather than God, right? Because it's hard to think of a God transforming and dying and being reborn. But an image, a God image, that's something that can transform and change, right? And it must, because if it doesn't, it loses its potency and dies, as he says, dies of its own temporality. And he contrasts that. He says, yet the supreme meaning never dies. You know, whatever image you hold that you, that you pretend to be God, let's say, or foundational to, to reality, whatever that is, whatever costume you put on them, that's going to come and go. But the thing that wears the costume, the supreme meaning, that never dies. That's the meaning behind the temporal form, and it remains. Whew, I love it. And he says it turns into meaning into absurdity, and out of the fire and blood of their collision, the supreme meaning rises up again. That's interesting, too, because remember, uh, meaning and absurdity are opposites, and, and it's something that can become uh, one or the, or the other and transform back and forth between them. That's what it's describing. And out of that relationship between the opposites united, out of the relationship there, out of the tension there, the supreme meaning rises again. And what does that remind you of? You know, it reminds you of the, the phoenix that gets reborn from its ashes or, or the sun that dies and is reborn every night when the, sun, when the sun rises, right, in the morning. Or Jesus Christ, you know, that died and, and was resurrected just like so many other mythological characters. That's what comes to mind. The supreme meaning is connected to this religious idea of death and resurrection. It's amazing. Of the descent into the underworld, right? That Jordan Peterson talks about in myths. You go down into the underworld to resurrect the Father, you know, order. And you bring back transformed being. You know, this is the myth of, of, uh, of Horus and Osiris. You know, Osiris dies. Uh, Horus has to go down into the underworld to, to resurrect his father. And when they come back, they come back joined, you know, Horus and Ra together as a transformed high God. And this is, this is what Jung is describing with this idea of the supreme meaning, the union of opposites, something that I'm going to call potentiality. Jung is going to call syzygy. We'll see that again. I just like that word. I'll bring it up, syzygy. All right. All right, and this bit wraps up with this last paragraph. Remember, this is sort of the spirit speaking to Jung. It says, the image of God has a shadow. The supreme meaning casts a shadow. The shadow is nonsense. It lacks force and has no continued existence through itself. But nonsense is the inseparable and undying brother of the supreme meaning. The image of God throws a shadow that is just as great as itself. 
the supreme meaning is great and small. It is wide as the space of starry heaven and as narrow as the cell of the living body. All right, so if that sounds like a like a piece of scripture, it, it does to me too. It's super interesting, but you never see that sort of thing in the Bible, you know? The image of God has a shadow. The supreme meaning casts a shadow. What does that mean? It means something like something like the conversation, the first talk that Kyle and I had with with Daniel Torden on the podcast where we were talking about God and how and how people like to conceptualize the idea and um especially in our own, you know, religious tradition and the Abrahamic religions and Christianity, God is depicted as all good, all powerful, you know, the great and the all good and the all loving, you know, the all benevolent force. That's how we see God, you know. But we never we never look at God as like the like the like the Hindus do, for instance. We never look at the destructive component. You know, in, in Hinduism, God is three things in one. Similar to Christianity, by the way, they have God as Brahma, which is the creator. God is uh, Vishnu, uh, which is the preserver. And God is Shiva, which is the destroyer. So you see, that idea of God is more complete because it includes the good and the bad and and whatever in between that, that, uh, <laughs> that keeps the two going, you know the preserver, the creator, the destroyer in one. The Christian God is just the creator, you know? Maybe maybe the creator and the preserver, but not the destroyer. And yeah, yeah, you can say about you can say God sent the flood and you know all that sort of thing, but but we don't think about God that way. We have a whole other word for it. We we say it's the devil, right? The devil and God. And the devil the devil represents all the bad stuff and God represents all the good stuff and never the twain shall meet. That's how we look about it. Even though we believe also that everything was created by God, and so the devil must have been as well, and we can easily think about that as, um, uh, you know, think about that differently as everything created by God as an extension of himself, in which case God and the devil are inseparable. And that is more like what Carl Jung is saying here. God and the devil are inseparable. When he says the image of God has a shadow, God and shadow. And he says shadow is the, the shadow is nonsense, right? Because it's one half of the syzygy. It's one half of the whole wholeness that God is. One half is sense, and one half is nonsense. And together, they're they're God. God has the shadow, right? That's important. It's very very important. All right. He says nonsense is inseparable, an undying brother of the supreme being. What he means is that you can't have one without the other. You can't have God without the devil, good without evil, light without dark. That in reality, they're a syzygy. They're one thing. And if you take one half of that thing away, it's not a thing anymore. It's, it's dead and, and impotent, right? And that's why he says uh, that, it, that it lacks force and has no continued existence through itself. The shadow lacks force, Right? Because it's part of it's part of the supreme meaning. The shadow, the devil, is part of God. Without God, there is no devil. Without the devil, there is no God. They're one thing. They're one thing. It's the best way I can explain it to a Christian audience. And when he says the image of God throws a shadow that is just as great as itself, I think that's 
that's super important. That's looking at, from a Christian perspective, looking at God and the devil as equals, right? As opposites, united, but as equals. You know, we're so often as, as Christians, we think about God being greater than the devil and ultimately conquering evil, right? That's what, that's what the book of Revelation promises, is that sort of thing, that good conquers evil, uh, that it's greater. And that is a mistake. They're, they're actually the same, God and its shadow are the same. There's no difference. In fact, they're one thing. That's why Jung says that God throws a shadow that is just as great as itself. That's important. So God is a syzygy, a whole composed of opposites, God and its shadow, sense and nonsense, meaning and absurdity. It's not God without its shadow. Both are necessary. They're mutually counterdependent and equal to one another. Something like that. All right, so now we get back to Young speaking, and he says, The spirit of this time in me wanted to recognize the greatness and extent of the supreme meaning, but not its littleness. But the small, narrow, and banal is not nonsense, but one of both of the essences of the Godhead. So what does he mean here? I think this is interesting for lots of lots of reasons. Kind of like what we said a minute ago. When he says that the spirit of time in me uh, wanted, wanted to recognize the greatness and extent of the supreme meaning, but not its littleness. What, what he's saying here is that he wanted God to be, you know, deep down in his heart of hearts, he wanted God to be tra- transcendent. He wanted God to be the, the highest, the most holy, you know, the the creator and origin of all things, the highest possible good, you know, the ultimate, the ideal, all of the good, high, transcendent qualities that we like to think about when we think about God. That's what he wanted God to be. He said, but not its littleness, which meant he didn't like, in fact, recoiled from the idea that God is just, just as God is all of the transcendent things I just listed. It's also its opposite. So for every transcendent thing, you have something, you know, mortal and finite and worldly. Um, You have, you you know, with all the greatness and the majesty of the mountain peak, you've got the the valleys and the swamps and the, the, you know, the, the pit, you know, in the center of the Marianas Trench, right? So you've got all of those things as God, the good, the bad, the ugly, and what Jung is admitting here, you can imagine, he's like thinking this through in his own head, that he has a bias towards thinking of God in all the highest ways and avoiding thinking or believing God to be anything that's less or lower, certainly not the dredges of of ideas and, and objects. But he says, those things, the small, the narrow, the banal, those things are one half of the Godhead. They're, they're its they're its essence, he says. And we too often think of God as the pinnacle, as the highest of high, as the omnipotent and omnibenevolent, but that's only half of what God is. Young is being asked, you know, by himself, to see God as as much in the small and banal as in the transcendent, as much in evil as in good. Huh. And he goes on, he says, 
I resisted recognizing that the everyday belongs to the image of the Godhead, but the spirit of the depths caught up with me and forced me to drink, uh, excuse me, and forced the bitter drink between my lips. Isn't that an interesting, interesting thing to say? He said, but the spirit of the depths caught up with me and forced the bitter drink between my lips. And it definitely sounds like a myth or a fairy tale, you know, a spirit forcing him to drink this bitter drink, right? And the bitter drink for him is the other half of God, the, the other half that he avoids because he doesn't think that, he, does, he has a hard time imagining that they're godly things, you know, the, the lowliest of things. All right, he says, the spirit of this time whispered to me and said, this supreme meaning, this image of God, this melting together of the hot and the cold, that is you and only you. But the spirit of the depths spoke to me and said, you are an image of the unending world. All the last mysteries of becoming and passing away live in you. God damn, that's good. So there's two spirits talking to Young, the spirit of the time and this deeper spirit of the depths. The spirit of the time says, the supreme meaning, the image of God, this melting together of hot and cold, that is you and only you. And there's something about that that's correct. And there's something about that that seems a little braggish, you know? It's you and only you. And I think the only you part is wrong. And this is where the spirit of the depths steps in and says, you are an image of the unending world. All the last mysteries of becoming and passing away live in you. So the difference, you see the difference between what the spirit of the times is, is telling Young is that this, this powerful thing, this potentiality, this union of opposites, that is you and only you. And the spirit of the depths, you know, from the, from the other shoulder, let's say, whispers to him, you are an image of the unending world. It's not you and only you. You are one of an infinite number, let's say. You are one of many. But each of you are an image of the unending world. What does that mean? An image of eternity, an image of God. Well, that's what the Bible tells us. We're, we're made in the image of God. And then the, the spirit of the depths tells Young, all the last mysteries of becoming and passing away live in you. So one part of this is, hey, you are only one image of God. You're only one of many, maybe infinite. But in every one of them, in every one of those images, the mysteries of becoming and passing away are there. What is that? The mysteries of becoming. Well, that's, that's the religious question. Where did you come from? Where did consciousness come from? Where did the cosmos come from? Why do things change and grow and, trans and transform constantly? Why does that happen? Those are the mysteries of becoming. And the answers to those mysteries are in you and me, are in everything. And I think it's interesting, man. I think you've got these, like a devil and, a, and an angel on the shoulder. One of them, the, the, the spirit of the time is sort of like the devil. And the spirit of the depths is like the angel, the person speaking the deeper truths. And they're, com they're competing with one another. And it's like they're whispering into Young's ear. They're both young. They both exist within Young, you know? 
maybe the maybe the spirit of the time and the spirit of the depths are opposites in union within Jung. You know, maybe the, those spirits that we're ta- that he's you know pretending exists in his psyche and talking to, and the unconscious is breathing words through these spirits. Maybe those are just like the hot and the cold. You know, the sense and the nonsense that those are also opposites that are united within the psyche that we call Jung, his self, something like that. It's interesting. It's interesting just to hear this argument going on in his head. That's what's happening here in the, in the Red Book. All right, then Jung says, I was thinking again about reasons and explanations. And I'll stop there for a second because I want to remind you that earlier he said uh, that, and you know what? I'll take it back. I think it's later, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to retract. Let me just finish. I was thinking again about reasons and explanations, but the spirit of the depths spoke to me and said, to understand a thing is a bridge and possibility of returning to the path, but to explain a matter is arbitrary and sometimes even murder. Have you counted the murderers among the scholars? Okay. Jesus. So the spirit of the depths speaking to Carl Jung again and says, there's a difference between coming to understand something and explaining something. To understand something is to bring it within yourself somehow, to incorporate it into yourself, to make it alive. To explain it is to render it dead, to take away its mystery and its potentiality, to deny what it really is. So to explain that the sun is a sustained explosion of helium and hydrogen is to explain away the mystery and majesty of even such a powerful and pervasive phenomena as the sun, the life-giving sun, you know? Taking away the mystery is removing something critical about what the sun, or any object for that matter, actually is. So there's a difference between understanding and explaining. And explaining is something like, it's negative, right? It's something like undermining the truth of of things. To explain something is like an arbitrary, um, it's like a replacement, an easier replacement for actually understanding something. So think about it like that. All right, he goes on. The spirit of the depths stepped up to me and said, what you speak is, the greatness is, the intoxication is, the undignified, sick, paltry dailiness is. It runs in all the streets, lives in all the houses, and rules the day of all humanity. It is the great mistress and the one essence of God. One laughs about it, and laughter too is. Do you believe, man of this time, that laughter is lower than worship? All right, Jesus, hair standing up on my arms on this one. And it may not be clear to you yet, but let me just make this clear for you. The spirit of depths, the spirit of the depths is whispering into Young's ear and saying, what you speak is. And he says the greatness, but supposedly, uh, presumably, the greatness of what he speaks is the the intoxication is. The undignified, sick, and paltry dailiness is. What does he mean when he says that? What you speak is. Okay, so we've talked about this before, but it'll do it again. Is is a reference to being. Just like am is a reference to being. 
I am, this is. What does that mean? It means we exist. That's what it means. It means we are in being. It's just a reference to being. That's what is means. So when he says, what you speak is, what he's saying is that your words your words have entered the realm of being. Where they came from, I don't know. But just like God, you know, spoke, let there be light, and light was, when you speak, what you speak is. There's some connection here to being, and you have more control over that and participate in that more than we generally give ourselves credit for. So when he says what you speak is, that's what he's referring to. But he goes further. He says... Whatever, whatever this thing that is, is, he says it runs in all the streets. What is that? Cats, dogs, people. It lives in all the houses. That's you and I, right? And rules the day of all humanity. Well, that's the fucking sun, you guys. He says that thing, whatever that thing that is, is, it's the one essence of God. It's the thing that we call being. And then he says one laughs. And laughter too is. It's amazing. It's like, yes, yes. My thoughts and my words and my laughter for that matter. I don't know where those things exist until they come out of my mouth. Right? I don't know where they exist. Is it the collective unconscious, the world of forms, my unconscious? You know, where are my thoughts and ideas until I need to use them? They don't seem to be on the tip of my tongue. They're certainly not in my pocket. Where are they? There's a mystery there. And it's like, the, again, the other half, right? Being is one half. The other half is God. You know, it seems like that's, where, the, that's where, that, where that comes from. The words that I speak, they come from the unconscious. Let's call that God. I like to do that. I don't see a difference, really, between the unconscious and the thing that we call God. I refer to that as the unknown part of ourselves. And we're going to see more of that as we keep going. What, what, what do you guys think about this? When he says, do you believe that laughter is lower than worship? So this is interesting. So let me just take a, a minute here. I said earlier, we're talking about being, that what is, is being. And that's one half of the, what Jung is going to call the syzygy of God. The other half, um, you know, that, that's being. That's you and me. It's the material cosmos. And what we say and do is, you know, we bring them into being from seemingly nothing, the things we speak. It's the same thing God did, according to the Bible, in the beginning. It's exactly what God did. Spoke the world into being. And if you don't think that you speak into being, think again. You speak words, and those words have an impact. Those words are a thing. They may not be a material thing, but insult somebody, and you tell me that your words aren't a thing compliment somebody, encourage somebody, and tell me your words aren't a thing. Speak an idea into, into the world, and then work to make that idea a reality, and you tell me your words aren't a thing. And where do they come from? Where were they before they were brought into being? That's a mystery. Let's go back to this idea of, la of laughing. So, when we laugh, we've made laughter exist, right? That's what we did when we laughed. We made laughter a thing, even for just a moment. It wasn't there until we did it. We made it a thing. And Jung asks, is laughter lower than worship? Is laughter lower than worship? What? What is laughter? 
but reenacting the power of consciousness to bring something into being, something from nothing. So as God can make something exist, we can make something exist. In this case, laughter. So in a way, we've exercised our own godhood in speaking or laughing, haven't we? We've brought something into being that was not there before we willed it, right? Isn't that higher, more sacred than an act of worship, which offers recognition for what was brought into being? That's what, that's what worship does. Laughter is an act of God, where worship is merely an acknowledgement of God. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And he puts that, is laughter lower than worship? Well, ask yourself, what do you think? It's interesting. All right, so he goes on, he says, you will recognize the supreme meaning by the fact that he is laughter and worship, a bloody laughter and a bloody worship. A sacrificial blood binds the poles. Those who know this laugh and worship in the same breath. I mean, like that's, that's what I mean, the mystical way that he talks. And remember, this is young talking out, out loud. He's talking to himself. He's writing down his thoughts. And this is what, this is what we're getting together. We're getting a glimpse into his inner, inner mind, you know. And what he's saying here, that you will recognize the supreme meaning by the fact that he has laughter and worship. Well, that, what, what that makes me think of is what I said earlier, that the supreme meaning is a recognition of God and the act of God simultaneously. So to recognize God as an act of God, and that may sound strange, but what that sounds like to me is self-consciousness. It is, the, it is the act of consciousness to know itself. That's self-consciousness. That's the thing that we are, self-conscious creatures. That's the act that I believe is responsible for material reality, for creation. You know, the Big Bang, that's self-consciousness as far as I'm concerned. And I, I received that knowledge, if you want to call it that, that, that in, intuition from a mystic experience. But that resonates with the mystic experience, what Carl Jung has said. He says a bloody laughter and a bloody worship. He says a sacrificial blood binds the poles, and those who know that laugh and worship in the same breath. What does he mean by that? So I think the sacrificial blood that binds the opposites together is their mutual coexistence and counterdependence. You, you know, you can't have one without the other, light without dark. They are an indivisible whole. And each opposite can become the other and vice versa. And this is something that was explained by Jordan Peterson way better than I can do. But he talked about the yin and the yang symbol as exactly this. It's a symbol of the union of opposites. And what you have in the yin-yang symbol is light on one side and dark on the other. But in the dark is a little dot of light. And in the light is a little dot of dark. And what that's supposed to represent is the idea that, again, the world as a whole is a union of opposites, light and dark. But the light can become dark at the drop of a dime. And the dark can become light at the, at the drop of a dime. You can see that in the symbol, a little light in the dark, a little dark in the light. And one can become the other, and the other can become the one. That's what the yin and the yang symbol is representing to us. They're an indivisible whole. 
each can become, each opposite can become the other and vice versa. And that's like, that's like the act of, that's self-sacrifice. The light sacrifices itself to become the dark. The dark sacrifices itself to become the light. Why? Because they can't be both simultaneously, right? Light is light, dark is dark. The light sacrifices itself to become the dark. The dark sacrifices itself to become the light. That's what he's getting at here when he says that the supreme meaning is sacrificial. It's amazing. And it goes on. It says, The spirit of the depth said, No one can or should halt sacrifice. Sacrifice is not destruction. Sacrifice is the foundation stone of what is to come. So there's a couple of ways to think about this. I mean, if you thought about sacrifice in the term, in the, the sort of ancient terms of like animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, that death is being given, right? For what? For for fertility, for the crops. And like we're sacrificing life. We're, we're killing this animal or this person in order to bring about life in some other way that, you know, make the crops grow or make the, make the, uh, you know, the, uh, the animals fertile or make the village women in the village fertile or whatever it is there. This is what we did, you know, in ancient times to sacrifice, you know, to give something back to God in order to get something else. He's saying, you know, it's easy, obviously for us to think about human sacrifice and say, that's something that is, senseless destruction and should be stopped and he's saying no one can stop sacrifice and no one should stop sacrifice that it's not destruction in fact it is the foundation of what is to come so i think ritually when we go back to an idea like human sacrifice that is a misunderstanding or a a misapplication of what young is saying here what young is saying here is something more like what what isaac newton said when he talked about the, the laws of thermodynamics, the, the laws of conservation of energy, you guys remember that. Nothing can be created or destroyed. Energy can't. It just transforms from one, from one state to another. That's what Isaac Newton tells us. And this is what Carl Jung is telling us. Sacrifice is not destruction. Sacrifice is the foundation stone of what is to come. So what is, if we're talking about physical reality, what is that breaks down and, and that looses up, you know, the matter and energy that you know, used to be a plant or a person or a building, and those things become something new. They become a new object or creature. That's, that's how it works. And the Buddhists will be the first to tell you that. Your soul is the same way. You die and that, that spiritual energy gets reused and something else is born that, that, that's how reincarnation is, is uh, you know, is pictured. This is the sort of thing that Carl Jung is saying. That things must die so that they can be rejuvenated and reborn. And that is absolutely necessary. It's necessary for the physical world. It's necessary for your own psychology. That you are a person that already in your life has had to die and be reborn as a new person. And that's never going to stop. Just think about, think about the person you were as a child, as an adolescent, as an adult. You know, the person you were before you had kids, the person you were before, before you almost died, the person you were before, you know, whatever. You were laid low. You're always changing and becoming something new. And that's the case with the physical world, and it's the case with your very soul. That's what Jung is saying. All right, so now we have another one of those italicized bits 
where young the young sort of spirit or soul is speaking to him and it goes like this it is no teaching and no instruction that i give you my path is not your path therefore i cannot teach you the way is within us not in gods nor in teachings nor in laws within us is the way the truth and the life woe betide those who live by way of examples Life is not with them. If you live according to an example, you thus live the life of that example. But you should live your own life, if not yourself. So live yourself. Yet who today knows this? Who knows the way to the eternally fruitful climbs of the soul? You seek the way through mere appearances. You study books and give ear to all kinds of opinion. What good is all that? There is only one way, and that is your way. May each go his own way. <sighs> Fucking A. So the Spirit speaking to Carl Jung in those words. And again, you have to imagine, Carl Jung is giving an image uh, for the Spirit to speak through, and those words that the Spirit is speaking, they're coming from the unconscious, but they're coming from Jung. And it's like he's speaking to himself. He's like, look, the Spirit within you, that you, that, you, that you recognize and value and believe holds maybe secrets for you. That spirit can't teach you anything. You have to live your life. And you can't find that answer in a spirit. You can't find it in gods or teachings or laws. You can't find them in holy books. You have to find it within yourself. And then he uses all this Christian language again. He says, within us is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, that, that's, that's what's said about Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And then he talks about this bit about um, uh, living according to examples. And it kind of makes you think of growing up and you know, looking at your mom and dad, looking at the, the teachers and adults in your life, look, looking at the role models all around you that you're trying to become. The same thing you know, intellectually when you're, let's say, starting college and you're learning all these, these people's unique ideas above and beyond, sophisticated ideas, above and beyond what you're getting in, in primary school and in high school. And uh, you know, for the first time, you, you start taking them on. They're personas, as, as Jung would say, that you take on. You're adopting somebody else's thoughts. That's what Jordan Peterson was, was, was uh, saying he was so reluctant to, to, to do, you know, when he first started college and then, you know, realized that he was doing that. These personas that you put on. And uh, that if you do that, you're living the life of the persona. You know, if you, if in order to be a good man, let's say, you try to be like your own dad because he was a good man then you're going to live your dad's life and not your life. And you should live your life. Your dad already lived his. You've got something else going on. You're a unique being. So you should live your life. It's something about being authentic. It's also something about making yourself novel, making yourself something new. And that's really important. You know, it, it, it resonates with the mystic intuition that, that what God is is something that is always being made new. You know, so, something like transformation and that's like what we just described when we talked about the transforming of your of yourself and the rebirth that you have several times throughout your life and you become something new. That is what Jung is telling us we should do. Live yourselves, he says. So to listen to, or to heed the soul is to follow your instincts, your interests, your fantasies. 
that call uniquely to you, to transform yourself into that unique novel thing that only you can be. See what I mean? In doing so, you actualize more of the uh, infinite potential or or infinity of potentiality, that, that thing that I call God. You are a unique pattern, no two alike, you know, like a snowflake. You can fulfill what you and only you are through living your life. That's what he's saying. So life is a process of unfolding what you are and coming to understand the truth of what you are. The truth of what you are, I think that that is what Jung was talking about uh, when he was talking about... Um, when he was talking about meaning. All right. The last little bit of this is, is uh, again, the spirit speaking to young, and it goes like this. The The one eye of the Godhead is blind. The one ear of the Godhead is deaf. The order of its being is crossed by chaos. So be patient with the crippledness of the world and do not overvalue its consummate beauty. Jesus, man, that sounds like something right out of the Tao Te Ching. It sounds like some some ancient Chinese philosophy right there, but it's also really beautiful. What does he mean when he says that one eye of God is is blind and one ear is deaf? So he's talking here about God as a union of opposites again, and we're looking at only one half of God. So half of God is blind and deaf. Half of God is something not like you, not like you with um, you know perception and consciousness and, and existence in a material world. Half of God is not like that. Half of God is blind and deaf. The other half is not. That's like you. That's the you part. You know. And he says that the Godhead is a being crossed by chaos. That's what he means, chaos in order, or chaos in cosmos. Those are the two sides of God, the the two opposites that unite to become the thing we call God. And because they're one thing, he said, that's why you need to be patient with the crippledness of the world, and also why you shouldn't overvalue its beauty, because the crippledness and the beauty, those opposites, they're one thing. The syzygy, the Ouroboros, one thing. Amazing. So this is a theme that you see and you're going to continue to see is that what Jung is struggling with is understanding what God is. It's the same thing I struggle with. It's the whole reason I have the interest I have and maybe I'm doing the podcast right now, trying to understand that. And he had trouble because he knew he needed to understand God as everything. He needed to, he needed to find God in the lowest of the low because he had already managed to find God in the highest of the high. He had to find a way to see God in the lowest of the low or he was going to have an incomplete idea, an incomplete experience, and his soul was going to keep yearning for that. Um, so again, we're going to continue to see this idea of uh, the syzygy that God is is uh, is the opposites united, and Young is going to continue to uh, be forced to confront this other half of the Godhead, the half that he that he doesn't think is godly and needs to needs to integrate into the idea of God. And that brings us to the next section, which I'm going to call "Refinding the Soul." It goes like this. I felt the spirit of the depths, but I did not understand him. And at this point, Young calls out to his own soul. He says, 
My soul, where are you? The one thing I have learned is that one must live this life. This life is the way, the long-sought-after way to the unfathomable, which we call divine. There is no other way. I found the right path. It led me to you, to my soul. Boy, it sounds like a prayer to me, doesn't it? He's calling out to his soul. And it's funny because this this line where he says, uh, this life is the way, the long sought after way to the unfathomable, which we call divine. So you can tell that Jung has been searching for a way to God. He wants to, he wants to know God, to touch God, to be God. He wants to get to the deepest level of his own self, um, the deepest level of reality. And he's just admitting that the way there is through living his life, which is what, what we just said a moment ago. But it's an interesting way of putting it, especially the way it starts. My soul, where are you? You know, He's really desperately searching for something, something that he can't grasp exactly. It doesn't stop him from trying, which is heroic as far as I'm concerned. All right, it goes on. He says, I thought and spoke much of the soul. I knew many learned words for her. I had judged her and turned her into a scientific object. I did not consider that my soul cannot be the object of my judgment and knowledge. Much more are my judgments and knowledge the objects of my soul. Therefore, the spirit of the depths forced me to speak to my soul, to call upon her as a living and self-existing being. I had to become aware that I had lost my soul. I had to accept that what I previously called my soul was not my soul, but a dead system. Hence, I had to speak to my soul as something far off and unknown, which did not exist through me, but through which I existed. All right, so now we have this, this quest for his soul, this recognition that Young has lost it, trying to recover it. And because it's lost, feeling like he's, he's searching through for it in this dark place and it's far off and unknown and, and foreign to him, his very own soul, you know? And I got to say, um, one of the things that Young, that Young said in his, um, in his book, Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious, is this thing about repression. You've probably heard that before. But he says that these archetypes, these instinctual forces, that they exist... And they sort of impose themselves on us, and, and a lot of that's unconscious. We don't; it's not something we're aware of, or, or what, or what have you. And if we don't, if we don't find a way of integrating those forces into ourselves, that they come out in, as neuroses, they come out in all, all kinds of weird ways, as sickness, as projection. So, I might, you know, I might have, you know, lustful thoughts about other women, and I'm all mixed up about it, and I haven't come to terms with it, and I come home and I, you know, suspect my wife is cheating on me, and I, I'm projecting on her the things that I haven't integrated within myself. Um, I hope that makes sense because that's something that is absolutely true and something that that people struggle with it, because it's unconscious. It's like if somebody doesn't bring it to your attention or if you, if it doesn't slap you in the face, a lot of people just never integrate those things and they just kind of get crazier and crazier as they as they go on. You need to be able to integrate that. So the shadow is another archetype that Jung talks about. That's that dark, violent, you know, uh, self self-preservation sort of instinct that we have in ourselves. 
Um, and people very often in the modern world never integrate that. They never become, as Jordan Peterson says, dangerous. They never become dangerous. They, they, because they haven't integrated their anger, what happens is their anger will burst out at the worst possible time because they have no control over it. They haven't integrated it into, the, into their, their self. So they get emotional and they get angry. And it happens like a spirit you know, forcing them to act. It happens in a way that doesn't seem conscious at all. And sometimes it's, it's terrible and you wish it, you wish you, you know, you wouldn't have happened. You wish you would have had more self-control. That's what he means when he says that you, if you can integrate that, if you come to terms with the fact that you, you know, have these sexual energies that, that, you know, uh, you're aiming in the wrong directions and that's why you're, um, you know, you're having these sexual thoughts about other women when you shouldn't. You come to terms with that. You figure out why it is that you, you, you're having those feelings. And suddenly you have more control over those instincts and impulses than you did before. If you integrate your anger, now it's not something that's like a spirit, a mad spirit that forces itself out of your ears like steam and at all the wrong moments and gets you into trouble. But it's something that you can keep in your in your pocket. And when the need arises, like, you know, somebody whatever, somebody tries to um, rob you on the street or somebody tries to attack your children or something, then you use that anger as a, as a weapon. Then it's something that you can harness and use when it's appropriate, okay? I tell you all of that because this is how Jung speaks of his soul. Like his, his soul hasn't been integrated into him. And as a result, it's this force that's outside of him, that's acting upon him in ways, in outbursts, in ways that he can't anticipate and can't control. This is how he's talking about the soul, right? He says, The spirit of the depths forced me to speak to my soul, to call upon upon her as a living and self-existing being, right? She, the, her, Young soul exists because it's not integrated. It exists as its own thing, he said, I had to become aware that I had lost my soul. And the next step seemingly is to integrate that back into itself. And I also want you to notice when he says, uh, where is it? He said, I have become aware that I had lost my soul. Okay, so notice that the I is, is not the soul. He said, I lost my soul. Well, if, if he believed he was his soul, if it was integrated and he was his soul, he wouldn't make the distinction. I lost my soul is not something you would say if you believed that you were your soul. You can't lose yourself, can you? So he says this idea of I, when he's talking about himself and the soul, are different. And so is the spirit of the depths, by the way, because the spirit of the depths is what forced him to speak to his soul. So what he calls his self, his soul, and the spirits he'd been talking to they're distinct things. You know, it's like the self and the spirits. They dwell within images, you know. And they're forms that exist within the soul. The soul is described as something more like the force that occupies the mental and, and uh, excuse me, the images and animates them. Just the same as, it, as you would think your, your soul animates your body. That's interesting. I 
I think it's probably worth saying here that when Jordan Peterson talks about things like what Young is talking about, Young's talking about spirits and souls that exist within his psyche somehow that he can speak to and he can connect with, but they're distant from him and, you know, in, in this very hard to describe way, like they exist in this realm of psyche and, and this this collective unconscious is not, not in the here and now, but in his own soul. Uh, Jordan Peterson calls them transpersonal forces, and he relates them mythologically to the old gods. And I, I, it's important, I think, that you see it that way, because, you know, in ancient Greece, in ancient Egypt and places like that, they believed that you had a spirit, you know, like Eros, the spirit of lust, and that spirit exists outside of you and can act and can act upon you at any time. And you don't have any control over that, right? It's the power of the gods. It's not, not under your control. And then Ares, Ares is the god that can possess you with anger and make you go to war. He's the god of war, you know, the spirit of war. And those aren't things that exist within you. They're things that, um, that impose themselves on you from outside. So they're transpersonal because they act on everybody, you know, equally. They exist, they can't exist within one individual because they act on everybody. That's why, that's why Jordan Peterson calls them transpersonal, but really that they're psychological forces. They, they, they impact everybody because they exist within everybody. They're a part of you. And I think this is how you need to think about the soul and the spirits when Jung is talking about them. Um, there's definitely a way in which you can think about them as as external forces acting on you that you don't have control over. But there's also a deeper truth that reveals that those forces exist within you. They're instinctual forces. That's what Jung calls archetypes. All right. He goes on, he says, He whose desire turns away from outer things reaches the place of the soul. He could find his soul in desire itself, but not in the objects of desire. If he possesses his desire, and his desire did not possess him, he would lay a hand on his soul, since his desire is the image and expression of his soul. So that's interesting. So if you can, if you can reach out and touch desire, then you're, you would be touching your soul, he says. Not the objects of your desire, not what you desire, just the fact that you desire. So what is desire? You know, it's something like will. It's a force with an objective. It wants something, you know? A force that moves and transforms with some intention. So to find our desire is to find that thing within us that has an intention and moves us towards its satisfaction. That is the soul. What we desire is irrelevant in a manner of speaking. It is that which we desire. Excuse me, it is that we desire at all, which reveals our soul to us. That's so interesting. And desire is interesting too. It's like Jordan Peterson talks about interests in that way. So he uses a Harry Potter analogy. He talks about the golden snitch, the thing that flashes, the thing that catches our eye, the thing that draws our attention. It's like a spirit. You know, when you encounter something that, that, that holds some, some interest for you, it's like you've never encountered it before, and you do for the first time. Like, I never, I'll use this example, but I've never seen this in real life. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist, and dinosaurs were, you know, fascinating to me. So I can imagine walking into a, a natural history museum 
and seeing uh, triceratops all put together in the bones and, and standing in front of it in awe and being gripped by interest in this thing. What is it? You know, what is it? I want to know all about it. That type of thing. When you get gripped with a passion or an interest, those things happen not in a way that is willful for you exactly, not in a way that you can control. So the question is, where does it come from? If I can't control the things that capture me like that, that grip my attention and my interest, if I can't control it, it's not my choice, what the hell is going on? So the things you desire, those are the things that hold interest to you. And where that interest comes from is a mystery. And Young talks about this with this phrase he uses, he, he calls it circumambulation. He's like, what happens is, one interest leads you to another and another and another and another. And what happens is you just, as you explore those things, whatever things your spirit calls out to you is significant, if, if you follow them, because many people don't, but if you follow them, it'll take you on this journey and it's like a spiral down, 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 closer and closer to this, whatever this actual um, gem of, of uh, your interest or desire actually is, you're circling closer and closer and closer to that thing your whole life. And it's not clear that, that that's a process that ever ends, but that's definitely a way of looking at ourselves uh, if, we, if we are one of those lucky few that follows the things that really interests us, that goes after that golden snitch. So desire something like that. And that, I think, is it connects you, when, when you ask where your interests come from or where your desires come from, it connects you to, a, to the unknown part of yourself, the place where those come from, the unconscious. And that's something I like to call God, although in reality I think it's more like, more like a combination of the unknown part of yourself, the unconscious, and the known part, the conscious part, the union of those opposites, of consciousness and unconsciousness, that's the thing that I that I think of as God. And it's not it's not all that different from the conversation that we're having with Young right now. All right, I'm going to read this one uh, quote to round off this section, but you've heard it before, so uh, at the beginning, but let me do it. If we possess the image of a thing, we possess half the thing. The image of the world is half the world. The wealth of the soul exists in images. So here's where I want to tell you that what images are, are that which the, which the soul can occupy. So in the Bible we hear uh, that the body is the temple of God. And that is how I look at an image. An, an image is a temple. It's a place. It's a thing that can be occupied by a spirit. And and, and this is really important because this is what he means, what Jung means when he talks about images. So images are a thing which a soul can occupy or a spirit can occupy. They are its mask, its forms, and its potential forms. It's half a thing, right? Its, it's image is half the thing, but the other half is the soul that animates the, the image, You've got the image, and remember the force in one, image and force in one. That's what he said earlier. You've got the you've got the image and the soul that descends into that image and possesses it, embodies it, makes it alive. It makes it alive and it gives it force, right? And what's interesting, and we're going to see this 
more explicitly is that images can be mental. You know, they can be ideas, concepts, emotions even. They can be physical, like the material cosmos, like you and I. And they can be representational, like symbols, like words and pictures and music. So think about that. Ideas, concepts, emotions, symbols, words, music notes, and physical things like bodies and objects. All of those things are images possessed by a spirit. That is mind-bendy. All right, let's keep going. I'm going to call this section Soul and God. It starts like this. I called out to my soul. I have gone through events and find you behind all of them. I found again first in images within men, and then you yourself. I found you where I least expected you. You announced yourself to me in my dreams. Oh, that you must speak through me, that my speech and I are your symbols and expression. How should I decipher you? <laughs> All right, gee, many Christmas, man. Oh, boy, so this is just packed, like so many of these things are. So Young is calling out to his soul, he's speaking to his soul, and he says, I have gone through events and find you behind all of them. So it's like everything that happens to me, all these things that, you know, that are happening to me in my life, I see my soul behind them as the force behind them. He said, I found again first in images within men and then you yourself. So he noticed a soul existed in others when he was, when he was doing his psychological work and speaking with people and you know, uh, trying to see what he could un uncover from their subconscious and their unconscious and all that. He noticed that there was a soul in men. And then he came to know his, his own soul. That's what he's describing. And he said, I found you where I least expected you, which I think is connected to what we've been talking about this whole episode, that his idea of God is, is limited to the highest things and eliminates all the lowest things. So he's got this incomplete picture of God. So where he found this other half of God that he needed to find was where he least expected it, in the lowest of the low, within his self, which he sees as unworthy. And it reminds me of another quote that Jung said from, a, from another, another book, I believe, where he said... He said, man does not find God because he won't look low enough. And then he says this amazing thing. He says, oh, that you must speak through me. He's talking to his soul. Oh, that you must speak through me, that my speech and I are your symbols and expression. So if you remember what I said before when I said, that Carl Jung would bring to mind images that would come from his unconscious. And then he would allow those archetypal images to be possessed by that spirit of the archetype so that he could engage with it, so that he could speak to it, so that he could understand it. The image you have is a symbol, right? And that symbol gets embodied. It gets possessed by a spirit. And that spirit comes from within, you know? It's some part of yourself that you haven't integrated. It's some part of God that hasn't become you yet. And then he says that when he speaks, it's his soul speaking through him. The way that I was describing speaking and laughing earlier as an act of God, of bringing something from non-being into being, bringing something from your soul, whether they be words or laughter or what have you, bringing them into the here and now, into the physical world, through the vibration of your, of your voice, vocal cords, into the, into the ether of the air around you. I mean, you really make something mental, physical that way, in a real way. 
you know, not just a metaphysical way. And then most importantly, he says, I, uh, he says, my speech and I are your symbol and expression. So the spirit that goes into the archetypes in his mind, in this active imagination that he's doing, those they descend onto the images in his mind and become alive. He says, that's the same thing that's happening with my own being. My body is possessed by my soul that speaks through me. So his physical body and his psyche are the symbols of the soul. Just like the symbols in his mind, the archetypal images in his mind that get possessed by the spirits within, he himself is that, is that symbol that gets possessed by the spirit. The spirit of life, the spirit of God, you know, the spirit that animates everything. And then he acknowledges that, that that's what he is. And he puts an exclamation point on it, which is, which is fantastic. And I love it so much. I love it. And you can also see that fractal picture happening of what's going on in his, in his mind when he's doing active imagination and what he is in real life, walking around in the material cosmos, that both of those things are symbolics, you know, representations that are possessed by a spirit, by, the, by something supernatural that is responsible for life and, and animation in the world. I fucking, A, that is so mystical. And he asks, how should I decipher you? You know, he wants to understand what that is, what it means, what he is. And so he asks, he says, my dreams have represented you as a child and as a maiden. I was talking about his soul or God here. My dreams have represented you as a child and as a maiden, I am ignorant of your mystery. Forgive me if I speak as in a dream. Are you God? Is God a child, a maiden? Forgive me if I babble. No one else hears me. How strange it sounds to me to call you a child. You still hold all, the, uh, the all without end in your hand. I went on the way of the day, and you went invisibly with me putting the pieces together meaningfully and letting me see the whole in each part. All right, so there's just a tremendous amount here, but I, this is one of those paragraphs that I particularly love because Carl Jung is absolutely speaking to himself and, and it's like a genuine, it's a genuine inquiry into his self. You know, he says, you know, I've thought about you as a child or a maiden. Are you a child or a maiden? Are you God? You know, he's asking those questions. Then he's like, forgive me if I babble. Forgive me if I speak as if I'm if, as if in a dream. Who's he talking to? You know, he's talking to himself and he's talking to God all at once. And he's struggling to understand God as a child. Remember, a child is, is something lowly compared to like a, a sage, let's say. You know, like this image of a wizard like we brought up earlier. If God is a wizard, he's like this old man that that's knows everything. And he's got all the hidden myst wisdom and mysteries that, you know, at his fingertips. That's something high, you know. You could consider that something high. A child is like the opposite of that. It's something low, something without experience, something, you know, without the knowledge and the mysteries and the keys to the locks. You know, somebody with, with, with very little. And he says, how strange it sounds to, to me to call you a child. He's being asked to understand God as the lowly things because that's what he's struggling with. It's amazing. And his soul is telling him that. And I have to say, guys, I struggle with that. I struggle with the exact same thing. 
I like to think about God as the the highest of highs, the transcendent, as something that I, I can aspire to that's above me that I'm reaching towards. But to understand God as something I already am or something that's like the dirt on my feet, um, you know, that's very, very difficult. And I think it is necessary. And Young certainly thought it was necessary. He, he's writing this first part of the Red Book, you know, to try to make sense of it. All right, he goes on, he says, I shall learn that my soul finally lies behind everything. And if I cross the world, I am ultimately doing this to find my soul. So this is interesting. This is Jung saying that the soul can be found within, but it, it can also be found from without. You know, if you travel the world to have experiences and see, see things and understand things, that's a path to the soul. But it's also just as, as well to look within your own self. And there you'll find the same thing. So the soul exists within and without. And I have to say that that's a very panpsychist way of looking at the world. The soul is the soul, God, is the world out there. And it's you yourself. And it's and it's the, your internal world, you know, the subjective world. It's all of those things. So was Jung a panpsychist? I mean, <laughs> I think that's an interesting question. I'd love to ask him. All right, he goes on, he says, I must learn that my thoughts, my dreams, are the speech of my soul. Dreams are the guiding words of the soul. Why should I henceforth not love my dreams and not make their riddling images into objects of my daily consideration? I love that. So I don't have vivid dreams, I don't remember them often, but if I did, uh, that would definitely be something that I would, that I would agree with and would be interested in. Why should I not, if my dreams are my soul speaking to me, why should I not pay attention? Why should I not try to figure out what, what they're telling me? And then he says, The spirit of the depths even taught me to consider my action and my decision as dependent on dreams. Dreams pave the way for life and determine you without your understanding their language. That's interesting. So your dreams pave the way for life and determine you. So what are, what are your dreams? We've already talked about this. The, Im the, the images in your dreams, and your, even the dream world itself, is like a connection between the conscious part of you and the unconscious part of you. The, un the unconscious part of you, that's the potential. That's the God part as far, my, as, far as I'm concerned. And does that determine who you are? Yes. And is that, <laughs> is that something that... that that is communicated in the language you understand? No. You know, to understand God is not an easy thing. Um, it, maybe, it's, maybe it's an impossible thing, at least in its fullness. But it's really interesting to see, to see him say that. And dreaming is, is a way of connecting you to the part of you that is God. You know, your future, the potential within you. That's amazing. That's amazing. To have access to... to interact with, to speak with, to integrate into yourself, you know, the part of you that, the potential part of you that, that you will become. Amazing. All right, then Young says, but how can I attain knowledge of the heart? And he answers his own question. You can attain this knowledge only by living your life. And that's an example of, of again, where, where Young poses a question and his unconscious gives him the answer. 
You know, he asked the question because he didn't have the answer. And the answer was yet, as soon as he asked the question, the answer was there. Where did it come from? He already knew it. It came from his unconscious. It's amazing. He says, so that your understanding becomes perfect, consider that your heart is both good and evil. So what does he mean by perfect here? And why does making your heart evil make it more perfect? Because good and evil are the same thing. There is syzygy and Ouroboros, two halves, two opposites united, two halves of a whole. You can't have one without the other. So he said, in order to perfect yourself, you must consider your heart is both good and evil. You must. All right, then he says, I lived into the depths, and the depths began to speak. The depths taught me the other truth. It thus united sense and nonsense in me. I am as I am in this visible world, a symbol of my soul. The spirit of the depths taught me to say, I am the servant of a child. Through this dictum, I learn above all the most extreme humility as what I most need. All right, that's so good. So good. So when he says, I am as I am in this visible world, a symbol of my soul, it means several things. It means he's more than he is, than just the part of him that's there in the visible world. Young is more than just his material body and mind, which is, which is amazing. The unknown part of his self is not there in, in, in the physical world. It's the unconscious. It's somewhere else, you know, something like that. So he acknowledges that, and then he says that he is himself a symbol for his soul. <laughs> so his body and, and psyche are a symbol for, for his soul, for the spirit to, to a, a place, a thing, a place for his spirit to descend and occupy, to become manifest through, to be embodied by, you know, a bridge between being and non-being, you know. It's amazing. It's so super mystical and amazing. He is himself a symbol of his soul. Just like a word is, uh, you know, a, 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 a series of letters is a symbol for, a, for a, an object in reality, you know, uh, you know, a cow or something. C-A-W is a symbol for this object we call a cow. He says, no, no, my body, my, my body and mind are a symbol for this thing we call the soul. It's the, it's the temple of God where God comes to occupy, where he comes to be at rest. And that's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing, man. Even the, even the most ancient creation stories we have um, from uh, ancient Mesopotamia say that human beings were, were created as a place for the gods to be at rest. It's absolutely amazing. All right, he says, uh, let's see here. Yeah, so when he talks about... Um, when he talks about the spirit of the depths taught him to say that he's the servant of a child, it goes, it goes back to with him saying that he's the symbol of, he is the symbol of his soul. Remember, the child to, to um, Jung, is the, it was an image that he, that he used to think about God or his soul. So he's a servant of God. He's a servant of his soul. He's the symbol uh, through which God exists. That's amazing. And he said he had to realize his own humility. 
He had to realize that God could be something like himself, something like the dirt on his shoes. He had to get to that point to, to recognize what he really is and what God really is. And it was humility that he needed most to be able to achieve that. It's amazing. And then he says, This dictum was repugnant to me, and I hated it, but I had to recognize and accept that my soul is a child and that my God in my soul is a child. Remember, remember, God is, is what you are not. It's the unknown part of yourself. And what Young most wanted to be was the opposite of a child. He wanted to be the person that knows. Not, not, not just that knows, but that knows the deepest mysteries of the self. He wanted to be, he, he had that ambition for himself. And as a result, he couldn't see himself as God. So he, so he saw God as a child. And he, saw, and he kept seeing God as a child, as, as something innocent, as something helpless, as something, you know, um, ignorant, you know. And he had to see, he had to, he had to contend and contend and, and wrestle with that idea until he finally came to understand that God can be that too. Amazing. And then he says here, if you are boys, your God is a woman. If you are a woman, your God is a boy. If you are men, your God is a maiden. The God is where you are not. So it is wise that one has a God. This serves for your perfection. Amazing. Amazing. So here he's just saying, you know, symbolically, that God is the part of yourself that, that, that is unknown to you or that you're unconnected with. That's why he calls it the unconscious. But you must have a God. So you must realize that you have a God. That other half of yourself exists. You must realize that in order to be perfect, in order to realize your perfection, <laughs> in order to realize that you are God. That's amazing. Amazing. And then he says, what is better, that man has life ahead of him or that God does? I know no answer. Live, the unavoidable decides. That's amazing. So is it better that man has life ahead of him or that God does? And there's the, the presumption here is that there's a connection between man and God, between the life of man and God, between consciousness and unconsciousness. Is it better that we have one or the other? He says, I don't know. But live and let the unavoidable decide. Live and God will be and man will be. So there's definitely an emphasis on living your life, on living as a means of, of, of coming to know the part of yourself that's foreign to you and unknown to you, to live so that you can perfect yourself, live your life so that you can become what only you uniquely can be, become yourself, your genuine self, your novel self. And in doing so, you make God more, more, you know, more than it was. You make more of God into being, something like that. And that brings me to my conclusion. I know it was a lot today, you guys, so thanks for hanging in there with me. Um, maybe I'll do fewer of these uh, in the future so that these episodes are shorter, but I have gotten absolute wealth of these sorts of things to talk about, so I'll be bringing these to you from time to time. Um, but let me just repeat, uh, read my prepared conclusion for you, and then we'll go about our days. In his masterwork, The Archetype of the Collective Unconscious, Jung describes his version of Plato's world of forms, or Whitehead's eternal objects, as the collective unconscious, 
which is the source of images, forms, or patterns. These images are archetypes, instinctive forces, or or a priori psychic models. Um, that's, that, that's used to describe it. A priori just means before experience. They're pre-existing, according to Jung. And they include the anima and the animus. So if you've heard of these, anima is the uh, female version, animus, the male version. It's something that represents the unknown part of yourself. The anima represents one half of the syzygy, which is the whole symbolic union of opposites. The anima is the unknown, unconscious, unmanifest part of yourself. It is everything that is that you are not. If you are a man and lack the fullness of femininity, it is the anima. If you are a woman and lack the fullness of masculinity, it is the animus. The unknown part of yourself exists and cannot be ignored. We are a whole, a syzygy, and come to experience our other half through the world and within ourselves by living our lives. I think the crux of this uh, waking dreams that we've analyzed so far is that God or the soul is a union of opposites, a syzygy, as, as Jung put it, and cannot be understood through its parts alone, only as a wholeness, as a unity of high and low, of mundane and transcendent, of dark and light, can it be understood. It is a great error to deny the shadow, evil and the darkness within yourself, within all things for that matter. Pretending for your own sake that God is only transcendence is to rob yourself of your own soul as a living force. To limit God in any way is to kill the animating force that makes the image of God potent, that makes it real. Once you've learned this, once you've come to know that the significance of the union of opposites, of the oneness of being, then you can identify the soul, or identify with the soul, I should say, with God itself. There is freedom in this, freedom that comes with knowing that you are a symbol an image, no different from words, signs, or musical notes. Your very being, the physical and psychic, is an image to be possessed by God itself. Just as the meaning of any image hinges on it being animated by a spirit, our meaning too hinges on our soul. This, I think, is the message of the ancient animistic nature-worshipping religions from our deep past. That spirit, kami or Tao, lives in all things, having descended into them to make them manifest. Something like that. This is what Jung is saying to us when he suggests that we can discover ourselves from within and from without. Everything is soul. And once we found our soul, what do we do with it? What do we do with that power? According to Jung, we live. That's what we do. But living as your soul is not the same thing as living as you do now. To live as your soul is to follow the things that call out to you in the world, to follow your interests and therein find more of yourself. To live as your soul is to see yourself exactly yourself in all others and all other things. 
And with this, through this, we transform on our own terms. And in that transformation, bring more of the potentiality that we are into being. We live, we transform according to our intention, and fulfill our becoming. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.